Welcome to a new edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. We believe that these positive messages that we are able to share will have an even greater impact on appreciating our community because it is the people within this community that make it the special place that we all enjoy. I appreciate all the support and positive comments that you have shared regarding these broadcasts And as we continue to build an oral history of our community with the experience, humor, and life lessons that all these people have shared. Today's episode is brought to you with the generous support of Leeds and Sunfine Jewelers, who have been members of our community for over 75 years and continue to support not only the Bighorn Podcast, but many other events throughout our community and the Coachella Valley. Bighorn Properties, the exclusive on-site real estate brokerage firm with the Bighorn Golf Club. The sales team of Lorna, Jackie, Tony, and Trevor, with more than three decades of knowledge and experience, are uniquely qualified to assist you in handling one of your most valuable assets, but also to explain the special aspects that make the Bighorn community the standard in the Coachella Valley. Back Nine Greens, who can improve your golf game and your property with their works of art. Dominic Nappy and his team will assist you in every aspect of your project, and they are vested in our community and stand behind their work to ensure your satisfaction. And Corliss Estate Wine, where time and reverence for old world techniques using new world fruits set their wines apart. Also, the team at Coralis Wine gives individual attention to their wine and customers in a way that makes them stand apart. Try their fine wines in both the poorhouse and the steakhouse here at Bighorn. My name is Marty Lockman, and today we will be talking to Bill Kubley, who, along with his wife Myrna, have been members since 2003. Bill is the owner and CEO of Landscapes Unlimited. Bill's personal commitment and aspirations have been the driving force behind one of the best-known, honored, and successful names in the golf industry for over 40 years. So let's get to Bill's story, which starts in Monroe, Wisconsin. Bill, thanks for being here, and start us on your journey. Thanks, Marty. I'm glad to be here and tell you a little bit about the golf business. I was born in Monroe, Wisconsin, a little... uh, Swiss community located maybe eight, 10 miles north of the Illinois line in the center part of Wisconsin. Our hometown is known as the Swiss cheese capital of the world. In fact, my family was in the cheese business, uh, started the Swiss colony. Some of you may have understand the mail order cheese business. And this is one of the first mail order, successful mail order companies in the country. My county of Greene County, Wisconsin had over 300 cheese factories way back in those days. I think they're down to 15 or 20 today, but great little community to grow up in close to Madison, Wisconsin, where I attended the University of Wisconsin, which is pretty close to home there. So just a great place to grow up. Bill, it sounds like a very Midwestern upbringing. We always talk about the sensibilities of the Midwest. What did you do when you were young? Were you involved in sports? Tell us a little bit about that and also about mom and dad. Sports uh, were always big in my life. Fortunately or unfortunately, I'm smaller in stature, so I wasn't on the football team. I I actually went and tried on cleats one day. I thought I should go out for football, but I weighed about 85 pounds as a freshman. I really wasn't in the cards. So I I ran cross country. I was pretty good, not great, but pretty good. I played golf in high school. I wrestled. Uh, I wrestled in high school and in college. My claim to fame in my golf in high school was that I tied Andy North in the conference championship. Unfortunately, it was for seventh place. But (laughs) other than that, I wrestled in college. And ironically, uh, Just to give you an idea of my stature, I wrestled uh, 95 pounds in high school for two years, 112 for two years, and and actually wrestled at 115 in college. And I only wrestled one year in college because I went to the University of Wisconsin, was my main university. But as a freshman, I went to Whitewater State. There I could wrestle. They really weren't too interested in me. Uh, wrestling at Wisconsin. And you know, it's a it's a 12-month sport when you're in college. And I really, really didn't want to do that. And some 
pretty big fellas. Some some pretty big fellas. (laughs) Wisconsin, that's for sure. But golf really was something you started at a very early age. Yeah, you know, we had a little nine-hole country club in town and probably started playing golf when I was seven or eight years old. My goal was to get a scholarship to Houston, University of Houston, which was kind of the golf school at the time. I was a, a pretty good golfer in ninth grade, but I never really got a lot better, you know, a couple strokes better. But I didn't even think about trying to go out for the golf team or trying to get a scholarship from Houston at that time. I did actually spend one day after the wrestling season. I went out for golf or had went to the first meeting at Whitewater. And the coach made it real clear that there weren't going to be any freshmen on his team. That's all I had to hear. And I think it was a way for him to get rid of the half or two-thirds of the 20 kids that showed up that wanted to be on the college golf team. So I didn't play college golf. Were your mom and dad interested in golf? Yeah, they they both played a lot of golf, a lot of Sunday afternoon golfers, men's day, ladies' day. My dad was a, a very average golfer, but really enjoyed it. That was one of the things we could do in the summer. So, you know, did everything else that the kids did. We played on the softball team, the baseball team, uh, just the normal, you know, intramural type sports too. My folks were very supportive of anything I was doing in sports, but it was totally different back then than it is today, you know, where you've got your kids have something going on two or three times a day, but had their support. In those days, we kind of went out on our own quite a bit during the summer. It's not as organized as things are today. Exactly, exactly. And you asked me about my parents. Uh, My dad, actually, uh, he was in the uh, World War II, went to the University of Wisconsin. In fact, he was on Tinian when the bomber took off to drop the big bombs, uh, which not great memories, but he was there. He was a medic, came back home and went to work for... uh, the Swiss colony, actually, the cheese business, mail order business, it was one of my relatives that, that, that hired him who started the company. And he actually bought a Frito franchise, uh, which is what they did back then, and for Wisconsin and northern Illinois, and put my dad in charge of that. And then my dad stayed in the Frito business forever, was retired from Fritos. You're going to school, you're active in sports, you play a little golf. Where did you see your life going at that point in your life? Well, I think initially when I went to college, I signed up as undecided because I wasn't sure. I really was interested in architecture. University of Wisconsin did not have an architecture school. UWM in Milwaukee did, but that's not the university lead school. And so I decided landscape architecture. So I actually, my freshman year, I took classes that would transfer into the University of Wisconsin because... University of Wisconsin was such a liberal school, and still is, not many kids in Wisconsin went there right out of high school. It was just not that you couldn't get in. I mean, they had to take you at that time. So Whitewater, we had 12 great state universities at the time. Now they're all part of the University of Wisconsin. I did that for one year, and then I transferred to Madison and took the full uh, three more years of study in landscape architecture. And then the last year, I did independent study to become a golf course architect. There aren't any schools in the country that actually teach anything about golf course design, so you kind of have to be self-taught. So I did that for one year, and uh, that's how I got into this profession. Is that still the case, where there isn't a lot of attention paid to educational value in designing an architecture of golf courses? Well, I think it's more that uh, it's such a small industry. When I got into the business back in 1971, after I graduated, there were probably 80 or 90 golf course architects in the United States. There isn't really a curriculum for 80 or 90 when you're only trying to add five or 10 a year. You really kind of learned by the school of hard knocks. You had to know about golf. And honestly, the, the greatest profession you could have if you have to have a degree would be landscape architecture, where you're working with the soil, moving dirt around, landscaping, things like that. So I had the right prerequisites with my landscape degree. And how did you decide that golf course architecture was something that you saw as a future? Well, I loved golf. As, as I said earlier, just thought I'd test it out. And there just happened to be on the bulletin board uh, my senior year an ad that asked, looking for an avid golfer with a low handicap interested in golf course design. And it was for a, a small company that was actually building a golf course around Des Moines and Panora, Iowa called Lake Panorama. Some people have probably heard of it. 
Actually, my wife and I weren't married at the time. We were engaged. In fact, we weren't engaged yet. Went over there. She actually was there when I interviewed for the job. And lo and behold, I took a job to be the golf course architect for this small design-build firm. It was a company that also built golf courses. Did you immediately say, this is going to be my life's work? I'm, I enjoy this. This is, this is what I want to do. You know, I wasn't sure. I had always been an entrepreneur. I had sold night crawlers from my house. I had uh, worked as a, a busboy, a maitre d', a dishwasher. I was born to be an entrepreneur. I was born to work for myself. When I went to work for this company as his architect, the first day there, a, a load of pipe comes in. Now, this was a small company. I was really his only full-time employee at the time and a, and a secretary that was part-time. A load of pipe came in, and I'm on, working on the drawing board already, trying to lay out some golf courses. He said, I've got to go find some people to help unload this pipe. And I said, well, I'll go out and do that. He says, no, 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 that's not your job. You don't really have to do that. And I said, no, no, I don't mind. And I went out, and and then this was PVC pipe at the time, and they were all uh, 40-foot lengths, 8-inch, 6-inch, 4-inch on down. I got went out there and unloaded that pipe, and I never left the job site. I just loved being out there. And so I, I became his architect and his foreman, and I didn't really know anything about building a golf course at the time. So I, it was learning from the ground up in the school of hard knocks. That's really how I cut my teeth in the business. We always, in these podcasts, Bill, people talk about the fact that to be successful, there's a work ethic that's necessary no matter what it is, especially in the being an entrepreneur. And we also always talk about, and it's been mentioned before, you want to be the first one in and the last one out, and you want to be the person that they count on when they need something done. And it sounds like that was your first day on the job or early days on the job. That's exactly what you were doing. When you're building a golf course, there's only so much time during the season to get it done. So it's not a 40-hour-a-week job. It's uh, 60, 80 hours a week. In fact, many of the jobs I did for this company early on, we'd go seven days a week. And I might go seven days a week for three or four months. Uh, You can't get kids to do that today. That was all part of it. But what a great experience I had building golf courses with this small company because I had to learn how to do everything. I had to help do payroll. I had to estimate the jobs. I had to drive the equipment. I didn't know a lot about equipment. I I had bailed hay as a kid, but I was the labor person. So, I mean, I learned how to run trenchers, tractors, bulldozers, things that I'd never had any experience at before. To learn from the ground up has probably helped me with my success all the way through my career is I've seen a lot of companies start in my same industry with someone, they might start with their first job as a $2 million job where they really don't know how to run a company. By learning the school of hard knocks, starting small, I think was a real advantage to me in starting. And learning to manage people. And learning to manage people. I started with temporary help when I first did my first few couple of jobs. My first job when I started my company, which was five years after I got out of college, was $21,000 irrigation project in Iowa. I made $7,000, about a 30% margin. I wish I could make 30% on everything today, but it just showed you. But that also included my, my wages. We're in that $7,000. You know, you think back to the days, uh, Marty, and I don't know when you got out of school, I was making $8,400 a year. And thinking we were doing pretty well. That was kind of the norm. And you know what? I always had everything I wanted. And I got married soon after I, I started this business. We never wanted for anything. We both were willing to work very hard, put in the time that it took, knowing that someday I was going to have my own company is what kept driving me. And when you got married at that time, too, we talk about this, it's a support system. You're in this together because you cannot give this much time in your, of your life to something unless you're supported by the person that you're with. Oh, absolutely. And, and in our case, because if you're in the golf business, you're not working in one community. Golf course in the Midwest back in those days would take five, six months to build. So you'd kind of move from one to the next. And so we moved around. We started in Panora, Iowa, probably only had a couple months left in the job when we got married, moved to Louisville, Kentucky for a year, and then moved back to Lincoln, Nebraska, and 
traveled from that area. But my wife, very talented merchandise manager, a buyer first and merchandise manager. Myrna has a hell of a head on her shoulders, and she, uh, she was a big driving force of the success of my company. And I think most entrepreneurs would say that as well. They've, they've got to play a major role. Uh, but she had to give up her job eventually to raise our family, and so she gave up her career uh, so I could have mine. That all panned out really well. When you first start, you have never done a golf course before. Tell me some of the challenges. How did this come about? I mean, you played golf, you understood the game, but how do you go from never doing something like this and all of a sudden developing this new golf course? I did have that opportunity to study golf course design, like I said, my senior year. And I actually went out on a golf course that was being built, so I saw a little bit about what went on. It's really not that difficult. I mean, guys building bridges, they look at what we do, and they go, well, how do you do that? How, how do you bid that? How do you know what you're going to build? And da-da-da-da-da. You know, it's like me looking at a bridge builder. I don't know. How in the heck do they do that? How do they put those girders up? So... It really wasn't rocket science. I mean, you had to learn how to run a chainsaw. You had to learn how to run this equipment. You had to learn how to glue pipe, lay sprinklers. I worked with pump stations, all things that were new to me. Because I was so hands-on, it allowed me to learn the business from the ground up. It must be a great feeling of satisfaction once you see the finished product. Oh, absolutely. The golf course to me is the prettiest the day that you put the grass seed down, because there isn't a ripple. It's all in the dirt, and it's beautiful. And then you see the, the grass germinate, and, and that's obviously what you play on. How does it move forward? You're now doing golf courses. How does this grow and grow? After five and a half years of working for this other company, for probably six or eight months, I was looking to go on my own. And I picked up a, one of these irrigation jobs, cut my teeth doing that. But within a year, I was doing my first nine-hole golf course on my own. I had to move from Lincoln, Nebraska. We were now in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is where we live yet today. I was building this course in Mitchell, South Dakota. I had to go move up to an apartment. My wife would come up and see me on weekends. We didn't have any children at the time, and she, she had her job. And what allowed us, allowed me to start my business is she had such a good job. My line always is that I could afford to fail. I could afford to go broke if, I, if my company didn't make it. Having her in that support role, at the time, probably one of the highest paid women jobs, you know, think of this, back in 1976, women weren't making a lot, but she had a really good job at the time. She was making a little more money than I was working in the for the other guy. So you had to move around. We're kind of vagabonds. So you're sacrificing all this time. I didn't realize at the time that that's what was adding up to what was going to become a very successful business for us. And I'm not telling you that it was perfectly easy all the time. I mean, where there's, as you know, in any business, there's highs and lows. I mean, when you're growing that business, I mean, it probably took me two, three years to get up to a million dollars worth of business in a year. If I ever thought at that time I'd be doing the amount of business that we're doing today, I would have said, you're crazy. It just won't happen. Because in the golf business, back when I started, there were about 100 golf courses being built a year in the United States. In the mid-90s, there were three to 400 being built. So the industry exploded, but it also retracted. Today, 15 to 20. So if you talk about an industry that's been decimated because of, mainly we were building way too many golf courses, it's the golf industry. The golf industry is not what it was way back in the mid-90s, but the opportunities are still very, very good uh, because there's a lot more renovation. People are spending more money on their golf courses. It's a different ball game than it was then. And actually, there's advantages sometimes to the smaller size jobs than the big ones. When you first started, you'd go in and bid against other companies. Was it a competitive industry in that regard? Good question. Yeah, it really was. I mean, there were very few jobs that you could negotiate like we do today. We probably negotiate half of our contracts today. First of all, I, my stature was still small. So I started when I was 26 on my own. I mean, they still thought I was 18 or 19 years old, which was a little bit of a battle, but an advantage too. There were probably only 10 national golf course builders at that time. And I was just an upstart. Today, there's probably 80 or 90 companies that can do golf course work. But 
probably only a half a dozen that are really big ones, and then there's some, some regional ones. So there's very few that work on a national basis, which makes it a little bit more advantageous to us. What happened and when did it happen that professional golfers got into the design business? And I guess the other question is how really active are most of those in the actual design of a golf course? That has its own challenges, I would think. Right. There's like two groups of the golf course, golf professionals that design. Uh, you had the Arnold Palmers, Jack Nicholas's, that really had to have their own companies to do it because they were so busy playing golf that they formed their own firms. They'd probably partner with a another golf course architect, which Jack Nicholas did, Arnie did. Ed, Arnie had uh, Ed Say. Jack partnered up with somebody. So they were really the, on the sidelines guys. But Jack got very active in it. Tom Weiskopf. Tom Weiskopf was more hands-on than the other guys. But I think Tom really just got more active about the time his golf career was up. A lot of the courses that you see today that I know Rory, Rory's trying to do a couple golf courses. Uh, Nota Begay did some for a while. They really just attached their name to them, and then they would tour the sites, wave their arms a little bit. But it was really the golf course architect themselves that were really doing the work. Well, and again, even Tiger, I don't know how active he's been, but he certainly has been active over the last number of years. Sure. The, the developers, they want to attach a name that they think in the old days it was to sell property around the golf course. That's kind of the business that has dried up. There's just There aren't many big horn golf course developments being done anymore. There's still some coming back a little bit. Attaching that Tiger Woods name, and, and we've built a golf course for Tiger over in Dubai. They got almost finished, didn't quite finish. They tore it up uh, before it was done. So we, Tiger has his own design staff too. One guy that he kind of works for Tiger and does work on his own as well. Arnold Palmer, we probably have built 20 Arnold Palmer golf courses. We've probably built eight or 10 for Jack Nicholas. Tom Weisskopf, four or five golf courses. So that, that's been a lot of the fun of the business. I mean, I've, I've been running with Arnie and Jack and Tom and Noda, quite a few of these guys. Nick Faldo, we've built for Nick. Uh, which has made it a lot of fun. I mean, it's a lot of fun to be in this business. Well, and if you don't have the reputation that you have and the amount of success, these people aren't doing partnerships with you. So that speaks to your reputation in the business. Right. Typically, what we try to do is get it down to where it's a negotiated job. And the architects will tee us up to get the project, or they may have to bid it amongst three or four people. If you have a bid with 10 or 12 people, I'm probably not going to be a low bidder. And if anyone's just trying to take low bid, I'm probably not going to be there either. So it's that combination of getting a lot of value. And we think we bring a lot more value to the table than uh, than some of these other contractors. You mentioned just in passing, and I've got to go back to it, that Tiger did a course in Dubai and you were involved in it and they tore it up. Could you explain that part of it? All I know is, that, and I never went to Dubai. My people went to Dubai and We've never built a golf course this way where we were actually had five, six, seven holes finished. And I mean finished, irrigated, the grass was grown in, the trees are all planted, and we still had holes we had scrapers on moving dirt. So, I mean, normally you would do all the dirt work first. You might start some other features as you're doing that. You're building greens, you're building tees, but you grass it all at one time. Well, over there, they did it a totally different way, and I think the developer just ran out of money. We actually got the full amount of the contract because they kept adding so many things, and they actually shorted us probably the last quarter of a million dollars. Our margins were so good on it, we still came out very well on the job. But uh, and we're, now we're looking at going back to Dubai again to do another one. We've done a lot of work in China. We work all over the world, but that's, again, part of what makes it a lot of fun. What are some of your great stories in developing your business and also working with some of these great golfers? Give us some insight into what those negotiations are and how you get a job done. I think of, you know, working with a guy like Arnold Palmer. Arnold did the tradition out here, which we built. Arnold lived out at the tradition for about a month or two months every year. Got to know Arnold very well. I've brought Arnold to Bighorn for dinner at least three different times. And almost everybody left us alone. Now, I mean, you're out there with Arnold Palmer, and there's, you get some people jerking their neck back, says, Jesus, I had Arnold Palmer. 
The only guy that ever came up to us was D. Hubbard. D. Hubbard came up and he was very gracious, introduced himself to Arnie and, and his wife, Kit, at the time. That was kind of fun. So Arnold was going to do this. We, we meet at Arnold's office down in Orlando at Bay Hill, and Arnold was going to uh, start this premier golf courses only, where they were no housing development, pure golf, to sit there in, in these rooms and negotiate with Arnold. Some of the highlights of my life, to be honest with you. I mean, to get, as most people know, Arnold Palmer made you feel like he was one of your best friends. In fact, a little sidelight to that is for the U.S. Open, the year that Arnold died, yeah, it was held right there in Pittsburgh. Arnold was at Latrobe close by, and I was at the U.S. Open for a meeting with the USGA. And I said, you know, I really don't care to go to the U.S. Open, but Arnie's over there, and I knew his health wasn't good, so I, I called him. And so Myrna and I, well, we flew over to Latrobe from Pittsburgh, which was about a 10-minute flight, had lunch with Arnold, and then he wanted us to stay for dinner, but we had to get back. We were with Arnie for four or five hours. I mean, I had to help Arnie in the restaurant. He had to hold on to me to get up into his restaurant at Bay Hill. And I'll never forget, because I didn't know this about him, we're watching the U.S. Open on television at lunch. Rory makes a, a putt, and Arnie goes, that's my boy. And I thought, I had no idea Arnie was a big Rory fan, but obviously he was. And so, I mean, he just was such a wonderful guy. Never said a negative about anybody. Even though he was negative on certain people, he would keep it to himself. I always respected that about him. Well, he was a, a real gentleman. And as an aside, as you well know, a lot of times people save autographs because they're going to be worth a lot of money. Well, Arnie wasn't worth a lot of money because he never turned down anybody and probably gave more autographs than any other athlete, if not person. The day that we went over to visit with him, and I've been at his office at Latrobe half a dozen times, but this last visit, Arnie has a stack on his desk every day, and he signs all of those things for these people. He was spending $100,000 a year just mailing autographed items back to people. He was so gracious, and he's close to being on his deathbed, and he's still doing it. I mean, that was still important to him, and every one of his signatures was perfect. Thank you for bringing that up, because it's my understanding that his comment was, if you're going to give an autograph, then let them know who it really is. And his penmanship was just as important to him as anything else. Absolutely, yeah. Well, just a wonderful part of my life. We developed a course in South Dakota called Sutton Bay. The golf course architect was Graham Marsh. Arnie would come up there and hunt pheasants. He was up there with his son-in-law, Sam Saunders, his grandson, and some of his other friends. Uh, shooting pheasants at our Sutton Bay. In fact, a story. We went to the Ryder Cup when it was at Hazeltine. Before the Ryder Cup was over, we left and went to Sutton Bay. Myrna and I were in our room. The golf professional calls me up and we go up and talk to him. He says, you'll, you'll never believe what just happened. He said, someone else checked in and got down to their cabin and it was the Arnold Palmer cabin. All of our cabins had a name there. Arnie's picture was in there, but he said, we, we checked in. And this Arnold Palmer sign has a screw on each side, and one of them had released, and the, the sign is vertical. It's never happened. It's never happened at, at Sutton Bay at, with another door sign, and Arnie had just died. I mean, it's just eerie that that happened. And, and it was the cabin that Arnie stayed in. He stayed in the Arnold Palmer cabin. Some of the fun things that I've gotten to do in my, my, my career to be around those types of people on a professional basis and become friends. You know, when Jack Nicholas put his arm around you, and Jack's not quite as friendly a guy as Arnie. Great guy, great guy, great spokesperson for the golf. Uh, probably the most prolific golf professional that was a, a golf course architect was Jack Nicholas's company. And then Arnie probably was number two, but uh, as number two in numbers of projects, but uh, both wonderful, wonderful guys. Those experiences are terrific, but Arnie was the king. He was the king. We were having dinner with them another time up. In fact, it was at Bighorn. Of course, with Arnold, always got a little bit of Kettle One in his cup, having dinner, and, and I said something to him. We're both probably feeling 
not a lot of pain. And I said, you know, I think Arnold Palmer is the greatest sportsman of all times. And I mean all sports. And you'd think, you've you've got basketball players, baseball players, but, but the longevity of Arnold Palmer is second to none. His wife turns to me and she says, Muhammad Ali. I had never thought about Muhammad Ali, but she was right. For the, Muhammad Ali wasn't the greatest boxer of all times, but probably the most renowned. And I don't know that anyone will ever surpass that. But that's how I feel about Arnold. You know, and there's probably some other greats for the longevity. I mean, he was. This was when he was 80 years old yet, and he started playing golf, you know, professionally when he was in his early 20s. And the reverence in which he's still held. You mentioned Rory and people like that. They weren't around to even watch him. Still, they have that reverence for him because the game today is because of Arnie and then Jack, certainly. But Arnie came at a time when TV first came in, and he was the perfect personality for that. Well, another quick story. I was playing in a pro-am at one of the Com events with Jason Day. Jason Day was the up-and-comer, the hottest first-year guy out there. I'm in his foursome because it was, it was a club we actually owned part of that was hosting the event. And I told him what I did, and he says, do you know Arnold Palmer? And I said, well, yeah. I said, he said, I can't wait till I get to meet Arnold Palmer. And then I was so happy when Jason Day won his event. Obviously, he got to meet Arnold eventually. And here's an Australian kid on the tour that couldn't wait to meet Arnold Palmer. Didn't say that about anybody else. You've been involved now for all these years. Give me a little feeling from your standpoint, which is very, very important because you're so involved, have been so involved, and continue to be involved. What do you feel the evolution of golf now? It was big in the 90s, maybe not as big a little bit after that. Certainly part of that was the Tiger effect, I would think, during the 90s. Where do you view golf today? Golf had been slowly declining for quite some time. The number of golf courses being built, like I said, that used to be over two, 300 a year, 400, play was being reduced. So we have way too many golf courses in America. So they were shutting down. They were still to this day shutting 80 to 120 golf courses a year and building these 10 or 20 that I talk about. This COVID has totally changed golf. We've seen it here at Bighorn. I see it. My company also manages about 75 golf courses around the country. Our dockets are full. I mean, we have members that are so upset that they can't get on their golf courses. You hear it here in town. I haven't heard it here at Bighorn because we have the two golf courses and they manage these two starters we have. They get these people out that you're going to get to play. The memberships are full at all these facilities that have been struggling. So golf, of all the things, as negative as COVID was and everything, it has been very positive for golf. So it's really been a resurrection, rebirth of golf. People are playing again. So the rounds are actually going up again, and I envision that it's going to stay level or even continue to grow. It's probably just the surge that the industry needed. It's been great for business. Tell me, you said you were involved in a tradition. What other courses in the valley or around the area have you been involved in? We built PGA West Norman. We built the Classic Club. Classic Club to this date is still the most expensive golf course we've ever built. I think our contract ended up being $38 million out there. We did the building pad for the clubhouse, did a lot of extra grading. We did all the landscaping on that golf course, too, which was probably $10 million. Did a lot of work on this new golf course out here in Coachella. It's been played already. I was out there Saturday, and it's really looking good. That's probably about what we've done here in the Valley. The one out there in Coachella, that's uh, Mr. Azoff's project out there. Ladera. It's had three names since we got started in it. The irrigation system on that golf course was well over $7.5 million, which is a lot. The landscaping, which we're also doing, is about $8.5, $9 million. They've moved 4,000 citrus trees that were already on the property. They moved them around. These are big citrus trees, so they're all lined up perfectly. I mean, it's a real wonder, and it was a terrible piece of property to me. It was flat, rocky. I hope everyone gets a chance to get out and see it. it. It's spectacular. You're bullish on the fact that golf is in a very good place right now. 
What do you see as the future? Because we talk about we don't have a lot of water. We don't have a lot of land. The ball keeps going further, especially for top golfers, the pros, for example. What impact is that going to have on the future of what you do? Well, water's a big thing. And in certain parts of the country, it really doesn't make a lot of difference where water's still free. I mean, in the Midwest, people don't pay for water. It's if you can get it out of the ground or get it out of a stream, it's virtually free, maybe except for the electricity to pump the water. You get over to Scottsdale, where they don't have near the aquifer. Palm Desert really has a pretty nice aquifer. There's plenty of water down there, but you you have to pay to take it out of the ground. They charge you for your water here. I think it's certainly limited in certain parts of the country. In the southeast, again, the water is readily available. It's the environmental things, the dust control that we, people here in the valley, in LA, because their water isn't short supply there. They're actually being paid to take grass away and put it back to native areas that don't need to be watered with sprinklers, maybe drip irrigation. You see it out here, too, that there's a lot. Of course, it's so dry and hot out here that drip irrigation is necessary anyway. Again, we're not building as many and we're closing more. Do you see that continuing? And the other question I have is, what you work with the USGA, you work with all the governing bodies. I'm sure that they ask you because of your reputation and what you've accomplished, if you have any ideas. What advice do you give the golf community as to what we need to do to ensure that golf continues to thrive? A lot of it is the length of the golf courses. We aren't using those 7,200-yard tees anymore. Shorter golf is popular. Pop stroke, it's, it's a putting courses, par three courses, executive courses. I've owned as many as 25 or 30 golf courses. We still have some One of them, our most popular one, is 6,008 yards from the tips. And we actually put one tee on somebody's lot to just get it over 6,000 yards, but it's probably 5950. But it's par 70. You're two shots better than your best score before you ever tee off if you're used to playing a par 72. So people enjoy it. We're doing 50,000 rounds a year in Omaha on that golf course, and it's, it's a little gold mine because people love to play it. Got another one down in Birmingham at Highland Park, which was a city golf course. They gave it to to a development group of which we're a part. That golf course is ranked as the 30th best public golf course in America by Golf Digest or Golf Magazine. I can't remember which one. And it's because people love to play. It's 6,000 yards. That's what keeps bringing people back. It isn't all the people that are breaking 75 or breaking 80. It's the players that have fun out there that are shooting 100, 95, 110. So you got to keep them in mind. So we got to keep building golf courses for them. And look at these driving ranges they're doing today with the nets and all, all the top golf places. They're booming. They're making a lot of money. It costs a lot of money to build one of those, uh, more than it does to build a golf course in many cases with the land costs and everything. So I think golf is is here, and I think those are the things we have to keep doing. We build a little golf course up here in Yucca Valley that is a 12-hole golf course. Uh, it was an original 18, totally redid it probably five, six, seven years ago. It took it a while to, to take off, but you can play 18, you can play 9, you can play 6. There's the holes, the way they, they come out to the clubhouse. There's a lot of different ways you can play it and play fast, get through. I mean, we're spoiled here at Bighorn because people play these golf courses quick. Three hours and 15-minute round is kind of the standard here. If you're pushing four hours, you're going to have some people climbing all over you. Time is also an issue, especially for young people, people that are working. It's difficult to put aside that kind of time, so this is important. But you also then have the pros. And the pros now hit it miles. You got to have tournaments because that also is a great part of the PR of golf, too, is to have the McElroys play all the time. What do you do? Is it the ball? Is it how do we not obsolete all these great golf courses that the pros going to play? Well, I think the, the ball and the club. They're pretty much maxed out, I think, and they have to keep them within that range. I mean, Nicholas is one of the guys that has been saying for years, dial it back. It's pretty tough to do that. 
to me, you can do it with the toughness of the golf courses. Look how they t tear up these courses here in the Valley last week when they were here. I mean, they're 22, 25, 27 under par. And they're playing PGA West Stadium, which isn't that easy of a course, although it, they've, they've made it easier than it used to be. It used to, they hated it in the old days. Now they, they don't mind playing it. They've got to tighten them up. These guys hit the ball so far. Tighten these things up. Make the hazards real hazard. Their balls are going to go in the water. A barranca of some kind where they're going to have to take a penalty, where they, they keep that driver in their bag. And there's more and more courses like that today. They could take a course like this and just eat it up because they're just shooting bullets. They're shooting darts at these greens. So you got to toughen it up in other ways to where distance isn't the most critical thing. And I think we find that. I mean, at least you and I can move forward when we need to so where we can keep enjoying the game. It's hard to, for us to have to move back. I mean, every year I get here when the fairways are moist and puffy and you think, geez, I'd lost another 20 yards. And then later on, thank goodness, Cheeto fixes things so that it's a little more forgiving in that regard. You mentioned too, and I want to touch on this because you've been involved in golf for so long. You mentioned the starters here and Jen and Brendan, and that's a really important part of a successful club and a successful golf operation, is it not? Well, it is. Obviously, it shows here. I mean, there's, there's very few golf courses that have uh, starters like we have. We're so lucky that they're really, they know the traffic, and maybe a lot of it has to do with the way these golf courses are laid out, that they could kind of plug people in at different places. Yeah, starters are critical, very important, and we've got two really good ones here. You've been a member here since 2003, you and Myrna. Tell me what brought you to Bighorn. We owned a lot of tradition. We're just getting ready to build. And my wife said, I don't want to be out there. It's too far out. La Quinta's too far. We started coming to the desert here probably back in 1990 or so. Tried a lot of the hotels. Actually had a, the timeshare at the Marriott like everybody did. It was kind of the starter place. We were going to look for a place to rent for two months. In fact, it was a member here, Doug Dieter, found us. We ended up renting Nimi Riggers house at that time. And we stayed here for two months. I didn't want to be here. I didn't, I didn't build Bighorn. Why the, why the hell would I want to spend a lot of my life at a golf, golf course I didn't build? But, and then the next year we rented another house out here. I wasn't a member yet. I was still a member at Tradition. My wife found a house that was almost new down on Wickle area. We bought one. Again, I really didn't want to be here, but I learned to love it. It's a big part of our life. We're happy to be here. I still belong to tradition, but I'm lucky to play it five or six times a year. What was your first impression of R.D. Hubbard when you met him? This is kind of a story I say. D. Hubbard initially was not my favorite guy. He wasn't what I thought ought to be the, uh, the guy running a club. But the more I was around him, the more I learned to love him. I mean, this guy has surrounded himself with some of the most talented crew of people here at Bighorn. I just wondered how he stayed on top of it all, but he really knew, you know, with all the business things that he had done in his career. I mean, he really didn't know anything about running a golf club, but he hired people that did. It's down to the dishwashers. It's down to, we were talking about it last night at dinner. There's members here that consider these employees, and I'm one of them, some of their best friends. They would fly out here to go to a funeral if they needed to out here. So, to, these people are like family. And Dee did that. Dee surrounded himself with people like that. So at the end of the day, I'm involved with clubs that have board of directors that changes every year, or some of them change every year. And it's, you know, there's, there's always in turmoil. There was never any questioner who was running the show. Even though he technically didn't own the golf course, the members own this club. We just don't have a lot of say-so, but it's entrusted to people that make the right decisions. He was the benevolent dictator. Also, there's a lot of developments. You know this better than I, but there's very few communities. This truly is a community where people live and know each other and socialize. And, and when people leave here, I've always felt the same thing that you said. They don't say, well, that third hole is just the best hole that I've ever played, or I love this part. They say those employees there are just the best thing about it. Exactly. And, and I, that's what I say about my company. I, being from the Midwest, 
I can't tell you how many times. If we're working on the, up in the Northeast, if we're working in L.A. area, if we're working almost anywhere, they say, where do you find your people? And I'm sure D got asked that all the time. Where do you find these special people? Well, they, they, this is a career for them. And the people in my company, I love hiring Midwestern people because if their work ethic is just solid, solid, they're going to give you 110%. It's people, people, people. And it's also, yourself included, and, and D, for sure, you create a culture where the people are appreciated. They like being part of this. Uh, it is, a, again, a community, but that culture is really important to maintain. Oh, the culture for us, for my company, we couldn't be as successful as we've been without our culture. Maybe that's the one thing I've been really good at. You know, your culture can slip a little bit in some growth years or maybe when you've had some tough times. you got to consider that culture all the time. And it's so rewarding to see these people working together and not a lot of jealousies between them when it's just the culture that, that is created. And you see it here, you see it see it at our company and probably in most around here if they're successful. The ones that are successful, absolutely. Bill, with everything that you've accomplished what does the future look like? I know that your family's involved in the operation of the company now. What do you see for the future? I see our company uh, thriving forever. I mean, there really isn't anything that's going to stop it. I mean, we were, I was so lucky to get into an industry that was going to continue. I mean, I think of some of these computer businesses, things that are in vogue and then they're done. It's going to be around forever. And like I said, even though we're not building a lot of golf courses, 50% of our business is irrigation on golf right now. Probably another 20% is bunkers on golf courses, redoing the bunkers, the better billy bunkers, the capillary concrete, new white sand. I mean, people are spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars redoing bunkers. So our business is going to continue. I've got a smart group of people there. In fact, they're meeting next week. There's going to be about 75 of my project managers slash superintendents from all over the United States We'll meet in Nebraska. My son-in-laws run the business. They're doing just a spectacular job. We're not very ego-based. We're confidence-based. Our people just have a lot of confidence. I get more pride when I see what some of my people are doing. And like I said, I was out at this Ladera Saturday with my regional project manager. They just made him an executive VP of the company. And this guy's managing half our business. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. This is a kid that when we did Classic Club, he was guarding the gate in a little truck. You know, the pride that you take when you see your, number one, your son-in-laws grow, see your employees grow, and growing from within. It's been a huge secret to our success is that we, we want people from within our company to grow and grow and grow because we know what they can do. And if they, they've got the ground solid under them, they're the best people that we could have. And they know that culture. And they know that culture. Tell me, who are the people that have had the greatest influence on your life? Well, first was my father. He, when he was in with this Frito business as a manager, he could have traveled all over the country and grown in the company, but he decided that living in this town of Monroe was important to raising his kids and raising his family. So he didn't move on in the, in the uh, company. He luckily bought Frito stock when it was a quarter, which turned into Frito-Lay, which turned into PepsiCo. So he, financially, he was, he was in great shape. But he just taught me the basics. It was nice people finish last. You hear that? My dad proved that that's not the case. My dad was a, was a nice guy. I'm not as nice as my dad. I, I'm probably okay, but my, my dad was a nice guy. People loved my dad. And he just taught me the little things that meant so much. Then my wife, Myrna, I don't think I would have ended up near as successful without someone that strong behind me and pushing me and questioning me, even though sometimes I didn't like the questions. But she's been super. Arnold Palmer's another one. Arnold meant a lot to me just in uh, what, what he could tell me. So yeah, there's been a lot of great people that have helped me out, meant a lot to the company. But yeah, dad, my wife, the greatest. What is your management philosophy? Hire the best people you can find. I always teased about my CFO. I, I always said I could could have found a better CFO. This is years ago. Could have found a better CFO, but finding a great CFO with a personality 
that could do other things for you. The guy ended up being president of our management company for the 60, 70 golf courses that we manage. You know, just finding the right people, pushing them, just hire really good people and work with them and and give them some rope. How would you define leadership? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. Uh, I think leadership just comes so natural for the right people. Leadership is, in my case, is hiring the right people and giving them some rope and letting them run. And they might choke once in a while, but they probably learned a lesson and they won't do it that way again. And then leadership is, as you said, the culture word, is the leadership, if they can keep creating that culture, keep exuding that culture, that's that's what can drive a, a company forever. The last question I always ask everybody, Bill, what would you tell the 20-year-old you today? What advice would you give that person? Just continue doing what you're doing. I, I, I wouldn't change a thing on what I've done. I'm sure there's a few things, little things along the way that you would change. I think if you treat people the way you'd like to be treated, take care of your employees. In my case, the employees are the most important people. There's been some years when we didn't make any money. Someone that has been working, I've been on my own now for 47 years. If you say you've been real profitable for 47 years, you've done something that I haven't done. There's been a few years that were tough, but at the end of the day, if I've got, I look at it this way, I've got a thought, and my construction company will have a thousand people working there. Times four, that's 4,000 people that are probably depending upon us for food on the table, taking care of their families. So even in a year that you don't make any money or you lose a little money, I still kept those people hired. I still kept them being paid. I kept food on their tables. That's something you can take a lot of pride in. So you just can't get so, uh, get down, mentally down, if, if you had a bad year. Because you know what? It was still a decent year for some people there that are working for you. And so it's just the, it's the basics. Take care of your people, and pretty much that'll take care of your business. Well, Bill, I, I sure appreciate you coming in today. We mentioned before we started, you and I really haven't had a lot of conversation. Um, I did some research before you came in, and I've certainly had great respect for what you've achieved and what you've done in your life and how well you've done. But as a person, I've learned a lot today. That's the most important thing. And those qualities, and for us to know people in our community a little better, like we've talked about today, is really important because that brings us all closer together. And I just want to thank you for coming in and sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Bill, thanks for sharing your story with us. You've given us some great insights into the golf game from a unique perspective. And thanks to Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, Back Nine Greens, and Corliss Estate Wine for their support. We look forward to bringing to you another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. Thanks for listening.